Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Tuesday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment, a conversation. We'll hear how two local legal organizations, an Asian American and Pacific Islander legal organizations, are coming together to support the families of those killed in last month's Asian Spanish killings. And also, we'll talk about initiatives to bring awareness and prevent hate crimes. That's coming up in just a moment. But first this, a group of Georgia faith leaders say they will boycott the Home Depot, signing, citing inaction in response to Georgia's new voting law. Now, the clergy represents more than 1,000 churches throughout Georgia, and they made the boycott official today, so to speak. Faith leaders have threatened to boycott some corporations in the weeks after Georgia Governor Brian Kemp signed Senate Bill 202 into law. Now, WABE's Emil Moffitt was at the press conference earlier, and he joins me now from the location. Emil, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Hey, Rose. Good to talk to you. What reason was given for officially announcing this boycott of the Home Depot? They said that the Home Depot was uh, one of the companies that had not gotten back to them, that had not responded to uh, to inv- invitations to discuss the new voting bill and efforts that could be taken to protect voting rights nationwide. And so they're saying that's the first step. That's really the first step is discussion, is, uh, is talking. And they said that Home Depot has just been unwilling to come to the table. Home Depot uh, has told them apparently they don't want to be involved in it. And so that's why uh, Home Depot in particular is called out in this boycott, which is uh, which has begun today. And Emil, this boycott, is it one that's simply urging folks not to spend money with the Home Depot? It is. Um, it, they're not only uh, encouraging consumers uh, you know, normal, everyday homeowners uh, not to go to Home Depot, but also um, contractors, uh, people who buy a lot of items from uh, Home Depot in bulk, and they're uh, encouraging them not to visit Home Depot either. And that could have uh, a little more economic impact than just uh, uh, money spent by uh, everyday homeowners. Emil, so just to be clear, the faith-based leaders say that there has not been any dialogue with the Home Depot executives and Home Depot just does not want to have the discussion about the voting law? That's what they're saying. They're saying that they have uh, reached out multiple times to try and uh, make contact and and invite them into a discussion, and they just said that Home Depot has been unresponsive. Uh, One of the pastors, Timothy McDonald, uh, said at this press conference, he said, um, one thing you can do to really make black pastors mad is to act like they don't exist, and that's the reason they gave for this boycott is because Home Depot, they feel, is just ignoring their demands to talk. And Emil, have we heard any response, any comment from the Home Depot regarding this boycott? 
We have not heard directly from the Home Depot. Reached out to them a little bit earlier today and have not heard a, a direct response from them. But um, they are getting a lot of defense from a very powerful position, and that's Governor Brian Kemp, who has come out in defense of the Home Depot. And he's set to speak at the Capitol here in about 25 minutes or so uh, to talk more about his displeasure about uh, this particular uh, boycott. And Emil, Emil, I know you'll have more on this later today during All Things Considered. WABE's Emil Moffitt live from the side of a press conference with a coalition of Georgia faith leaders officially announcing a boycott of the Home Depot. And Georgia Governor Brian Kemp is expected to respond in just about 20 minutes, as you heard Emil tell us. Emil, as always, thank you. We really appreciate it. Meanwhile, in other news, the CDC is still investigating the cases of those Johnson & Johnson vaccines. Now, this comes after additional reports of severe blood clots in people who had received the J&J COVID-19 vaccine. Now, CDC Director Dr. Rochelle Olinsky says she's encouraged there hasn't been what she calls an overwhelming number of cases. These have been a handful of cases, not an overwhelming number of cases. We are working through and adjudicating them and verifying whether they do, in fact, uh, reflect a true case. Now, the CDC and others will meet this week to determine whether or not they want to continue the pause of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. And if that does indeed continue, we'll have more information for you. Now, at this time in Georgia, here's what we're told. More than 5.3 million vaccines have been administered. That's about 20% of Georgians who are fully vaccinated, too. Now, the total number of confirmed cases since last year is 869,590. And 17,241 Georgians have died Due to the virus, the number of hospitalizations is around 60,521. And speaking of vaccinations, some local private colleges and universities in Atlanta are requiring students to provide proof of vaccination before they return to campus this fall. In a message on the school's website, Emory University President Gregory Finves said student vaccinations are, quote, crucial and will allow campus life to return to normal. And the college president says students will be allowed exemptions to the vaccine policy due to maybe medical conditions or in the case of just a strong personal objection. And the AU Center, of course, which includes Spelman, Morehouse, Clark Atlanta and the Morehouse School of Medicine, said there are 8000 students that will attend these university, these colleges this summer. This excuse me, this fall will also have to get a covid-19 vaccine if they want to be on campus this fall. And everybody wants to be on campus this fall, so we'll see what happens. This is Closer Look. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Last week, the lone survivor of the three deadly area spa shootings that took place last month left the hospital. Through his attorney, Elcias Hernandez-Ortiz told WABE's All Things Considered local host Jim Burris it was a testament to God he wasn't killed 
while inside the therapy room of Young's, Young's Asian Massage in Cherokee County. Now we're going to play a clip from the interview, and we should note it includes a detailed description of a deadly shooting. It may not be appropriate for all audiences, so listener and parental discretion is advised. The sound clip is about 51 seconds. When you were in the therapy room and the gunman came in, walk us through what you saw and, and what went through your head. As soon as I heard the shots, I opened the door to see what was happening, and I could see the bodies laying on the floor. The gunman was standing there, looked at me, and I dropped to the floor. And then he told me to look up at him, and I did, and I just begged him not to shoot me. And that's when he just pointed the pistol at my face and shot me. That is Elcias Hernandez-Ortiz speaking through his attorney, Doug Rohan, with WABE's Jim Burris. You can hear the entire interview online at WABE.org. Eight people were killed the late evening of March 16th, six of them Asian women. And groups within the Asian American communities here in Atlanta, of course we know nationally and from abroad, mobilized to support the families of those who were killed. That includes a coalition of Asian American and Pacific Islander bar organizations, but there are other initiatives as well. I want to learn more about them. Joining me now is Sarah Hamilton, president of the Korean American Bar Association of Georgia, and Angela Su, the president of the Georgia Asian Pacific American Bar Association. Thank you both for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank you, Rose. You know, Angela and Sarah, prior to those horrific killings, we had been hearing reports of so many attacks, violent attacks on Asian Americans and there was so much conversation after these killings. Well, was there enough press? Was there enough awareness about that? And we can get into, you know, folks who say it's a, these were hate crimes, these weren't. But we do know there were thousands of what were considered hate-inspired attacks on Asian Americans since last year. Your thoughts on, on just that whole conversation of folks saying that perhaps there wasn't enough conversation or enough attention paid to what was happening in this nation. And Angela, I'll start with you. Yeah, I think I think the general feeling for Asian American communities that there wasn't enough focus on it for a variety of reasons. Um, and that, you know, that this particular incident with these shootings was sort of the culmination of all that. So there was an entire year worth of kind of coronavirus fueled hate mm-hmm. and hate incidents. Um, and it's also, it, it just sort of speaks to, the, I think, the unique nature of discrimination oftentimes against Asian Americans, that that it's this sort of presumption of foreignness that we have. Like, we are presumed to be foreign until proven otherwise. And that's sort of a, just kind of an odd thing. If you think about, you know, conflicts between this country and other foreign countries, that they don't reverberate back to American people in the way that, if, you know, if the U.S. has a conflict with an Asian country, mm-hmm. it has a way of sticking to Asian Americans, emphasis on, on Americans. Um, you know, it, it harkens back to you know, the Vincent Shin um, killing that was fueled by uh, hatred against Japanese, um, you know, in, in terms of their competition with U.S. automakers, you know, back in the 80s. 
and and other similar things. So it it it's really it's really unique. And and we sort of watched all this. I think Asian Americans we were we were watching all this happen, but it really kind of never made. It didn't seem to make kind of top line national news. Mm-hmm. It was sort of on the fringes of collective consciousness. And so I think this really was for all of us kind of like enough is enough. It's a culmination. Mm. Sarah, your thoughts. I agree. It's been described, the March 16th events in Atlanta have been described as kind of a watershed moment for AAPIs in the nation. And, um, you know, I tend to agree with that. But whether there was enough press or not, because one thing I learned in the last year was, you know, with the incidents in the um, in the last year kind of bubbling up the thousands of nearly 3,800 reports made by Stop AAPI mm-hmm. Hate was, you know, in my Facebook group and my kind of um, social group. This was big news uh, many, many months ago. And then it felt like when the events happened on March 16th, that was cited in national news. And there were a lot of, there was a lot of commentary about, well, I didn't know that there was hatred against Asian Americans and and these kind of comments. And then when it became national news and that kind of commentary started was when I, I, I kind of also realized, you know, (laughs) <laughs> this this is this is a a good thing from the sense of it's finally pushed us internally to talk about it as well as I think the nation in some sense and gotten us out of our 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 bubble in a sense where I kind of just I guess assumed everyone was talking about it because in my Facebook account in my LinkedIn feed mm-hmm. it was being talked about but that's just not the case so in in that sense um, I, I don't think there can ever be enough coverage of it because. I don't want it to be a passing kind of fad because the truth is we know that this has existed even long before the coronavirus. Mm-hmm. Um, BJ Pack, who's part of our initiative, you know, at our press conference and our launch spoke about some very horrific criminal incidents. And we have a reason to believe it will continue to exist even after it passes over this news cycle. So in that sense, we, we want to keep the conversation going. And part of that conversation is folks being able to share those lived experiences as well. Sarah, you have a lived experience with something like this, correct? Yeah, that's right. I mean, as a community leader, not only of a group of lawyers, I mean, this is something that I think that we have a duty as people who are kind of put in this place in time and it happening in Atlanta. But, you know, I um, I also was targeted in a racially motivated attack in 2014. And at that time, I told virtually no one, um, including my best friends or my employer or even my parents. And even now, it's very difficult to talk about. And I only kind of recently made the decision to come out and really um, come forward with this about, you know, after the crime happened, you know, there was it was certainly racially motivated and being mocked about, well, do you know Kung Fu or do you know Jiu Jitsu about to defend yourself? And um, which is hilarious because I'm Korean and neither of those are really Korean martial arts. Although I guess that's a lot to expect of, 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 you know, criminals, but, um, but, you know, it was prosecuted by the Fulton DA at the time. This was before there was a hate crime law in Georgia. And, you know, I was very thankful in a sense that it was prosecuted. There was a plea, um, but, but part of the problem that we have, I think, not necessarily as a community, but uh, just in general, it's, it's very difficult to report these issues. And there's an education component among 
people not necessarily knowing that this is wrong, this is illegal in all sorts of aspects of American life, housing or employment or or just random criminal attacks like me. But um, but if there's no reporting and there's also this end on the law enforcement, how they handle that type of um, that type of reporting um, on my case, I don't believe it was ever reported. Um, to the federal government, even though there's this kind of 1990 federal statute to, to aggregate this data. Mm-hmm. But since there's no reporting, and even when it is reported, there's an issue with how it's handled that we don't even have an idea about what the scope of the problem is. And and and, and that's certainly one of, of the major issues we have. And, and one reason that we've kind of come forward as lawyers, as organizations to, 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 to really try to make a difference. Shortly um, after the shootings, I, I think just a couple of days later, maybe the next day, I spoke with Georgia State Senator Michelle Al, who told me the state needs more data on hate crimes against the AAPI community. I'm going to play a clip for you right now. Take a listen. One big problem that we need to address first before we talk about changing the law, putting in specific language, is that people are not reporting these crimes. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you noted that AAPI hate had uh, recorded 32 reports of API hate over the past year. That is a vast underreporting, right? And we all understand that this is generally the case, but maybe even more so for groups that have a high immigrant population, mm-hmm. people who have language barriers where they might feel comfortable reporting, people who have a, you know, established and reasonable apprehension of interacting with law enforcement, they're not going to report. So there's a lot of barriers to people reporting. So I don't think that we can understand the scope of the problem and how we can classify things as hate crimes or not if we can't even see uh, what people are experiencing out there. Angela, what do you make of what uh, Senator Al had to say here about here in Georgia with hate crimes? I think she's exactly right. I think she's identified a lot of key issues here. Um, you know, and, and I, I think we're going to speak about the fundraising efforts that Sarah and I have been involved mm-hmm. with, but it's a nice segue into that. Um, really, the issues are a lot about education um, and uh, invisibility. And so she's really talking about kind of the visibility piece that, you know, that, that a lot of these people, a lot of the targeted individuals are the most vulnerable people in our communities. So these are people with maybe limited English um, they're people that, you know, that don't have great access to resources. How would they even know how to report? And then on the flip side, you have law enforcement. They're probably a little bit undereducated about how to handle these types of cases, um, especially, you know, in, in the greater Georgia community. And so those are some of the things that we are working on um, with, the, with the fundraising that, that, you know, that we're developing programs around educating the community, educating law enforcement, working with law enforcement about increasing visibility and supporting those. There are a lot of initiatives, I think, that are ready uh, on the way, you know, that that are ready um, in place that we want to support and that we will create new ones as well. Um, I don't know if you want to go to Sarah to talk about yeah, the, no, the fundraising. I, I want to get into those fundraising initiatives in just a moment, but I also I want to ask if either of you had an opportunity to stay in, in contact or communicate with the the family members of those who were killed. I have not. Um, three um, or four, four of the victims were Korean females and um, all of them are being represented by uh, actually members of the Korean Bar Association, three of whom are on the board of um, of of CABA. So, and the fourth one being rec- uh, 
um, represented by BJ Pack, who's mm-hmm. part of this fundraising initiative. But I personally have not, and we have we have done some kind of discussions with different groups and we've obviously made ourselves available uh pulled together resources legal resources other resources but you know also wanting to protect them from Mm -hmm. from being able to disclose and talk about these things on their own time and not be um kind of thrown into it sarah you had mentioned that it took you a while even today and that was in 2014 you did not you know you had difficulty discussing the circumstances of what you went, the ordeal you went through with these initiatives that you all are fundraising for, where do you begin to, to encourage and empower folks to come forward? Um, That's not an easy thing for a lot of folks. That's right. And I think that when we first started this initiative and and it really just started kind of as uh, conversations among ourselves as leaders of of the Asian legal community, as uh, you know, where where do we even start with a problem like this? Because the first issue is really kind of, I think, recognizing uh, you have a problem in a sense, right? Uh, we're starting from square one in a sense that that um, it, these these are very difficult to report. And and I did. I waited in my case, mm-hmm. and then I even though I, I ended up reporting to the law enforcement, I I didn't tell as I as I mentioned most. And probably none of my friends to this day know know about this, but but I, I think some of it is as Angela mentioned these initiatives that we're hoping to fund because at the end of the day, statements are good, initiatives are great, but what makes things kind of function is money, mm-hmm. <laughs> and being able to to get on the ground and partner with groups to educate people in the community and to educate law enforcement too. We've had several law enforcement people come forward and say, you know, I'd like for our law enforcement to be better prepared for this, but we don't even, we can't even find a resource, you know, for someone to come in and give us a talk about this. And so, you know, finding and funding and creating initiatives um, to help people come forward is is certainly one of the, the initial problems because, it's it's very tricky. Well, let me let me get your thoughts on that. And and I'm not can't get into the pockets of local law enforcement, but you know, someone listening may say, well, would it be that expensive to have some type of foreign forum or bring someone in to talk to, you know, law enforcement? Not to say that that sounds like an excuse, but or we'll call it an explanation. But Angela, what do you make of that? Because we've seen instances where law enforcement where they found funding for all other sorts of initiatives. Well, actually, uh, different parts of the law enforcement community have stepped up to talk to us. And so we're trying to, or some of that really is, can be done, I think, to your point, um, at, you know, low or no cost. If, If people are willing to have the conversation, that's kind of where you start. And, and I think we're, you know, I mean, some of this is sort of drinking from the fire hose for, for Sarah and I, because there's been such an outpouring uh, from community leaders within the Georgia community and outside and nationally and all this kind of stuff. So we're trying to gather our arms around all the resources that, you know, that stepped up. But I will say that, you know, for, to the point about um, visibility and encouraging people to report and things like that, that, you know, I really feel like that this particular conversation fits into the continuum of the social justice conversation that started last summer. Mm-hmm. Um, that, you know, that the fact that there are that, I mean, I've gotten outreach from like an engineer's group, a scientist group, artists, uh, a chef's group, chef's group stepped up today. So it's a, it's a pretty mm-hmm. big 
movement, it feels like, but it's a continuum of, of a movement, I think, that started last summer, these conversations. I think that that for one of the first times that I recall where there's real visibility around social justice issues in general, and that people who might have hidden their some parts of their selves in other places, you know, outside of their um, outside of their affinity groups, now have a little more encouragement to come out from um, from the larger community, from people outside of their immediate community. And I think that's a wonderful thing. And so I think that's that's one of the one of the pieces of this that feels like, you know, there there could be real change. One of the questions I always ask when I have conversations like this is what is an actionable outcome or what is a desired outcome or how do you measure the effectiveness of something like this, uh, initiatives like this? I've asked so many uh, grassroots leaders, organizers about this. So, Sarah, I'll start with you as we wrap up. What was an effective way to measure the initiatives that you all are doing and other folks throughout the nation? Sure. Well, I think for my group of friends and and kind of just the conversation is is kind of first accepting that we have a problem because you know one reason I did want to come forward with my own story was because even now that it is in the national news and there's these horrific attacks and there's kind of just smaller kind of incidents of hate that don't result in crimes is people look at the news and they still say well, that's an incident that's happening in some neighborhood in New mm-hmm. York City. That's not really something named that's happening to my friend, you know, this person I know. And so a recognition that this is a bigger problem and, and we've also got to do our part as a community. In terms of our specific goals, you know, f- for me, a, a a great outcome is, as lawyers is um, – is raising money. We, we want, we challenge individual lawyers to give money, but we're also um, having conversations with numerous corporations to kind of, you know, put their money where their mouth is in a sense, because mm-hmm. as lawyers, you know, and I'll let Angela kind of speak to this more, but we as bar associations are not really in the business of providing direct services. Uh, what I think we do best is, is, is as lawyers, we are in a very unique position to kind of weave in and out between our people who work as prosecutors deal directly with crime victims. And then we have people very high up in corporations and law firms who are have direct connections with so many companies in this mm. huge cross-section of, of corporate America. So what I feel and, and one reason I, I felt called to this moment is because we are uniquely positioned to raise money and that's something that we do as bar associations and we will give out that money in recognition that, you know, I don't like asking for money as much as anyone next to me, but at the end of the day, how I can help, how lawyers can help and what we've been called to do in this moment is to raise money so that we can help with these reporting and and, and education issues that we've identified. Absolutely. And Angela, I've got about, I apologize, I've got just about 20 seconds here. What do you want to add to that? Um, no, I think I think she said it really well. I think it's really about, you know, fundraising um, for this national fund. We're excited about the first of its kind. And, uh, we you know, we hope that we are able to do a lot of good with it. All right. We'll have you all back to check on these philanthropic endeavors. Angela Sue, the president of the Georgia Asian Pacific American Bar Association. Sarah Hamilton, president of the Korean American Bar Association of Georgia. Thank you both for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Rose. Thank you. 
And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Nearly 84 million adults have been fully vaccinated. That's just about 32% of the U.S. total population. But here's a question. What about getting shots in the arms of the other percentage? Now, recently on NPR's Morning Edition, a feature on vaccination sites between two sites in different regions, L.A. and Florida. And the segment included this from a young man named Tony Brewington in Tampa. I'm afraid to put something in my body that I'm not 100% sure of. And I'm just not sure of the vaccine at this time. Not saying it works, it does not work. I think I need to do more research for myself so I'll be able to make my own educated decision. Well, Tony certainly is not alone in feeling this way. So you want to call it vaccine hesitancy? And it was part of a conversation heard right here on the program yesterday. And that segment was spurred by feedback from you, our listeners. And you all continue to email questions during and after the show. So guess what? We're going to bring you the conversation again for those that may not have online access. The guests were Dr. Lily Immergluck, Morehouse School of Medicine site principal investigator for the COVID-19 Prevention Network. Also, primary care physician and infectious disease specialist. Also, we heard from Dr. Deval Desai, director of hospital medicine at Emory St. Joseph's Hospital, as well as an internal medicine pediatric specialist. So let's begin here. Dr. Decide. Let me stay with you because, along with millions of other healthcare workers, y'all have been on the front lines battling this deadly virus. How do you put into words where we are right now as a nation with these vaccines that are available? Hi, Rose. Thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure to be here with you this afternoon. So, I feel overall positive right now. I feel reassured with our vaccination rate that we have going on. We have made monumental progress over the last several weeks, and with now vaccines being expanded to the general adult population, we are going to continue to see that. And as a healthcare worker, as a healthcare provider, I think it's important that myself and my colleagues take every opportunity to talk to patients about the COVID vaccine, especially those that remain hesitant. Well, Dr. McGluck, let me ask you, uh, where you can you put into words right now where we are as a nation with the, these available vaccines? Well, uh, first of all, thank you for the opportunity to be on your show. Um, it's always a pleasure. And I concur with what Dr. Desai said, uh, but I do think we can keep moving forward and do better. Um, I am also hopeful uh, given where we are. And as a pediatrician, I'm also thinking about the pediatric population and how soon we can get them also uh, in the mix of being classified as vaccinated. Um, but yes, I, I'm, I'm hopeful, but I again feel like uh, we, we want to balance that hope with making sure we are still doing the efforts to contain uh, the spread of uh, the uh, novel coronavirus, especially given the variants and the mm-hmm easier transmissibility of these variants in our community. So I, I think that's a balanced approach to make sure that we are guarded with our uh, our mitigation strategies, we're guarded with what we take as, as safe to take our masks off. I, I think we're not quite there. Um, so I want to be cautionary on that piece. Dr. McGluck, I saw a headline that pretty much said that despite now that the nation's adults, at least half, have received at least one vaccine dose, the headline said, quote, now an uphill battle starts to get more shots into arms, close quote. How much truth is in that headline? This is going to be an up, uphill battle. Yes, I also con- agree with that statement because, you know, all the people who are like waiting and wanting to get vaccinated are able to. Uh 
and thankfully, like the priority groups, uh, many of the priority groups have been uh, offered the opportunity to get vaccinated. Now um, are the folks who are maybe less than enthused to get vaccinated. Uh, so I think it's about how to listen to what their concerns are that have been kind of not buried, but it's not been the forefront um, because we were just in general, uh, the distribution wasn't such that we could open it up to all uh, of our population, adult population. So I think we need to step back and think about who are these folks, why are they hesitant, and address them concern by concern uh, through community engagement. And I, I think that's one thing that Morehouse School of Medicine, that we've really started from the very get-go, mm-hmm. try to, to do this. I agree with that. I, I'm, maybe I'm not supposed to, but you all were so eager to come on the program and, and you provided information. So folks can't say that Y'all didn't have the information because you did. So I just want to be fair about that. Uh, Dr. Sai and Dr. McGluck, I want to replay that clip we played earlier from the NPR uh, Morning Edition last week. It was from a young man named Tony in Tampa. I'm afraid to put something in my body that I'm not 100% sure of. And I'm just not sure of the vaccine at this time. not saying it works. It does not work. I think I need to do more research for myself so I'll be able to make my own educated decision. Dr. Desai, let me ask you this, because I know it's not lost on you what you just heard Tony talk about, but he says he wants to do his own research. Where should Tony begin? Well, I think first and foremost, he should partner with his primary health care provider or another healthcare worker physician. Um, I think it's our job to navigate patients like Tony, citizens like Tony who are on the fence. Let's ask Tony, why is he scared about putting something in his arm? Is he scared he's going to have anaphylaxis? Is he scared about the side effects? Is he Mm -hmm. scared about what's in the vaccine? We really have the power to help navigate and find those answers. And I honestly have had several patients just like Tony. They're admitted for non-COVID reasons, but I'm taking intentionally every opportunity possible to talk about the vaccine. And I'm finding a wide variety of reasons when I ask, well, why don't you want to get it? And some people to say, well, it's the side effects. I openly like to talk about the side effects. They are not easy, but we need to face them. That's an investment we're making to get the return on investment for the immunity. Um, And there are some more complex issues that come up too, but we as healthcare providers can really take that moment to engage and navigate patients and citizens just like Tony. Dr. McGluck, what do you want to add? How do you reach folks like Tony? I I think it is to help uh, folks like Tony identify that trusted source. Uh, sometimes the primary care physician, although we would like to think of ourselves as being always available, um, I think that sometimes um, uh, for some folks, it's not necessarily as accessible. And so how do we as primary care physicians and healthcare in general uh, improve the communication to those trusted sources, to those churches, to those community organizations uh, where people can go and get information? I think the other piece that he mentioned uh, very, very nicely was make his own decision. Mm -hmm. So what does he need to make his own decision? You know, um, I know that we all are all about like evidence-based medicine and using the science to drive us. But how do we uh, get that science information out there so that Tony can feel like he's empowered to make his own decision? And that's the question I ask myself uh, a lot. 
Last week, the partnership between the Georgia Department of Public Health and the Georgia Municipal Association launched a statewide campaign called It's Worth a Shot. Now, here's the mayor of Union City, Vince Williams, talking about the historical distrust of science and vaccines. But by his viewpoint, this should be different. I see how these horrible incidents, along with the disproportionate impact of the pandemic on communities of color over the past year, can bring you little hope. But today's vaccine process is safe and effective. I'm hearing a lot of uh, uh, conversation around, well, it's too fast. We're in 2021, people. Medicine has elevated to an amazing pace. It doesn't take years and years to come up with something that is effective. I, I want you to know you can trust this process. I, along with my family, joined other 70 million Americans who trusted in the vaccine process and already have received, myself as I shared earlier, both vaccines. Now, Dr. Desai, along with folks like you and Dr. Emma Gluck, we folks say, well, I expect y'all to tell me, tell us the importance of this vaccine. Now we're asking local leaders to get involved, too. Um, do you think this is an effective campaign? I think certainly it's effective. I commend Mayor Williams in Union City. I'm a big fan of the idea that health, really good health starts in the community. Uh, That's where a lot of trust happens. That's where you have your friends, you have fellow citizens. The local leadership can really have that positive influence. And for Mayor Williams to put himself out there, advocate for the vaccine, openly share his story with, I think that's key. And that's one step closer to vaccination and immunity for that community. Dr. McGluck, something like this can really help to get the message out? Absolutely. You know, um, I mean, I was fortunate to be one of the first folks who got vaccinated. Uh, I, uh, I got the Pfizer vaccine, both doses. But, you know, now, you know, recently we are started this um, uh, college age study targeting um, 18 to 26 year olds who we think, you know, from a behavioral standpoint, they're less likely to necessarily mask. Um, but we engaged in uh students from the four HBCUs, so Morehouse College, Spelman, Clark Atlanta, and also Morehouse School of Medicine to develop a youth advisory board so that we can say, hey, what is what, what are people in your age group, uh, in your institution, what do they feel are their concerns? And again, this is another way to reach out to the community by listening to the community. And that's what, you know, I, I think is just so key to getting this message out. The voice you hear is Dr. Lily Emmergluck. She's Morehouse School of Medicine site principal investigator for the COVID-19 Prevention Network. I'm also joined by Dr. Deval Desai, director of hospital medicine at Emory St. Joseph's Hospital. I want to take some time now because we did ask listeners to, and they could remain anonymous, to send me their questions or concerns. And again, we know that you all are the experts, but we ask that folks always consult with their primary care physician. Here's one from a closer look listener, KP, who says, could someone break it down while healthy people who get the vaccine develop better immunity than those who are immunocompromised and why it's important for the healthier to get vaccinated in order to protect the more vulnerable? It's a good question. Who wants to take that? Anybody? I can't answer it because I don't take know. A step at that. <laughs> Go ahead, Dr. Omega. So if you have a healthy if you have a healthy immune response, you have all of the tools you need to mount the protection uh, that your body needs so that a, a germ like the COVID-19 uh, germ can't get beyond just getting you exposed. Mm-hmm. If your immune system isn't working, 
uh, so it's like weakened for whatever reason, then um, getting exposed to that germ, you're less likely to get your defenses out there. So for all of us who have healthy immune systems, to protect the people who don't have healthy immune systems or have uh, uh, issues, not just necessarily their immune system, but medical conditions, mm -hmm. it is our responsibility to protect them by getting vaccinated so that we don't raise the level of the virus circulating in our communities, especially with some of the variants which are more highly transmissible. It is our job to protect those who cannot protect themselves. Here's a question. Someone says, I'm hesitant to get the COVID vaccine due to the small amount of information we know about its effect on pregnant women. I'm not pregnant, but I'll be trying to have a baby in the next two years. I'm very hesitant with anything I put into my body due to the alarming rates of infertility among women in their late 20s, early 30s. Could you ask one of the physicians about their thoughts surrounding the limited trials that have been done on pregnant women or women trying to get pregnant? Anyone, uh, Dr. McCall, I know you are heavily involved in that. Is that something? I can, you, or Dr. Desai? Go ahead. Go ahead, Dr. Emmerglick. So first of all, let me just emphasize again, none of these uh, COVID vaccines that have been FDA approved for emergency use authorization uh, are injecting any live uh, COVID, vac uh, COVID virus in us, okay? Mm -hmm. Um, you've heard, I mean, many of the listeners may have heard that the technology used actually isn't like it was all of a sudden developed during this pandemic. Actually, the technology used had been has been around for some time. It's just that the novel coronavirus itself is new. So it's taking a piece of this novel coronavirus, a piece, not anything live, uh, and letting our immune system see it so that if we see the real deal, we'll know what to do. If you think about pregnancy, and what's happening during the pregnancy. Number one, there isn't any uh, live virus being injected into a, a person who's pregnant. And from so from an immunologic standpoint, what's happening is that your body's developing an antibody response to prevent infection. As you go further and further along in your pregnancy, your immune system is gonna be a little bit less robust as somebody who isn't pregnant. Mm -hmm. And so you want to have you know, added protection so that you don't contract COVID-19. I, I, you know, um, one of our, our program manager on our vaccine trial unit, she actually was pregnant during um, uh, uh, during our trial uh, and she delivered her baby, but she was, she got her Pfizer dose uh, and she was so excited the day that she finished her second dose. But I'm just saying that, you know, that's a, a, obviously an anecdotal story I'm sharing, but mm -hmm. I'm just saying to you that to me, the pregnancy issue, uh, uh, to get the vaccine shouldn't uh, prevent people from getting it because the disease mm -hmm. from getting COVID-19, if you're pregnant, can be really serious. And Dr. Desai, you are- If I Peter, may yeah. add one more yeah, point. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so um, personal anecdote. Thank you, Rose, um, and thanks, Dr. Emmergluck. So um, I will share that my wife, we had our second child last year, right around the time the pandemic hit, and that's when Rose and you and I chatted last. But, mm -hmm. you know, we uh, she there was also- concern with getting the vaccine while nursing or breastfeeding. And my wife did make the choice to get vaccinated while she was still nursing um, with that. And we feel really validated, really firm and positive with that because now we're seeing time and time again that the evidence is showing that antibodies are being passed to the baby. I'll also share a quick anecdote. I have a colleague who is on the front lines with me fighting, expecting her first child. And she also did her research and ultimately did get vaccinated um, for COVID-19. As Dr. Emmerglick said, getting the disease is far worse than getting vaccinated at that point. The antibody response is what we need. 
Dr. Desai, I want to stay with you for a moment because here's a question. Someone says, uh, what is the normal life cycle of a vaccine and how do scientists know when a booster is needed? Now, that may be a long question, but uh, what's the normal life cycle of a vaccine? Well, uh, you know, it's um, so if we look at the flu vaccine, the flu vaccine is a prime example how we have to take it yearly. The flu vaccine, the flu virus itself continues to evolve um, and the vaccine has to be changed and adapted to what the virus is really presenting. So similarly, we may be in a similar situation with COVID. It is still we are in the first part of this where we're still seeing the initial groups of people that were vaccinated and how long their antibody response is there. Mm-hmm. Um, as Pfizer put out last week, that it's likely that a booster shot would be needed in that one year time frame. The exact time frame is not 100 percent set in stone, but that's the reality. And that's not a surprising Uh, finding to be expected at this point. Uh, Here's a question. Uh, Very important. How safe is it really for kids? I guess kids would mean 16 and under, I'm assuming, because now that anyone over the age of 16. Dr. McGluck, you want to tackle that one? Yeah, so we are already underway with um, what we call phase three uh, vaccine trials for uh, kids at actually, you know, some going down to six months and up. So, you know, the normal progression for vaccine trials is you start with healthy adults and then you move to adults that have maybe risk factors that you worry about. And then we start to de-escalate uh, down to different age groups. We start with the ones that are teenagers and then we move to the younger group and younger and younger. And so that's what's happening across um, for the currently FDA EUA approved vaccines. Um, and, and, and I think Dr. Fauci said this weekend that uh, the hope is that maybe by June-ish um, that we would have um, vaccinated uh, or the opportunity to vaccinate um, our, our pediatric population. Hmm. Here's a question from a listener who says, can I just wait a few more months or do I have to get vaccinated? I don't know what, I, that's just the question I think I'm time is of the time is of the essence and we should act now. Um, I am on the hospital in the front lines with COVID is not zero. We are still seeing new cases with disease severity that is out there. We have the vaccine. If it's available to you, now is the time to educate yourself and make an informed decision to get it. Well, and then on that note, because I want to be fair, because a listener just emailed me and said, look, hi, Rose, trust is the main factor. Aside from Tuskegee, there were instances in recent history of forced sterilization and experimentation of prisoners that need to be acknowledged and addressed. Advertising campaigns aren't effective. What do y'all make of that? I mean, again, it, it is, a, look, you can't deny that what history, what has happened. But, and Mayor Williams says, look, it's 2021. We've got to move beyond that. You all are, are physicians of color. How do, and it may not necessarily just be folks of color, because the rural population, which here in Georgia is predominantly white, mm-hmm. that's what we are told, this vaccine has to be in that community. So, how do you how do you reach that? How do you reach that population? Let me just uh, explain a little bit. With these clinical trials, it's been so important that we include minority populations. And I think I what I try to emphasize to all the people who generously volunteer to participate, and we had about 60% African-Americans, about 6% um, Latinx community that participated in our trial recently that completed phase three. It's the informed consent, first of all, they have to understand what's involved with volunteering for a, a vaccine trial and knowing and asking questions. I think that for the general public to say, what does it mean to then vaccinate with a 
vaccine that has been given FDA approval for emergency use authorization, um, they have to understand that that vaccine has gone through the processing of the clinical research spectrum, evaluating safety all along the way, uh, and also the effect, the efficacy. And it's only at that point uh, that it's been offered in this setting of being in a pandemic that uh, the general population can get it. So again, it's trusted source. What questions do you have that makes you wary that you are not being offered the best and safest uh, that we are offering for anybody? Mm -hmm. I think that that's what it comes down to. Uh, and also continuing having that trusted source after you get vaccinated, uh, knowing who to ask those questions to. Well, let me ask you all both this, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing because I've got a couple emails about this. Everyone doesn't have a primary care physician. Some folks yeah. don't go to a doctor and tell they break an arm playing basketball, pick up basketball. Some folks don't have that. So how do you, you know, you, you're asking, you know, when we heard Tony and we talked about Tony needs to consult his primary care physician. Tony may not have a primary yeah. care physician. Dr. Desai, you've probably had patients who did not have insurance. Right, right. So for me in the hospital, uh, you know, whether a patient's coming in for a broken bone or for something else, I'm working on being intentional about taking every opportunity to talk to every patient about the COVID vaccine. You raise a very good point about healthcare access and what if you don't have a primary care physician? What if you're younger, you don't really go to the doctor ever? In that sense, I think we really need to take charge of our community organizations, whether it's churches, schools, going out in the community and educating on the local level. I think that trust will start individually in a small environment, small group fashion. I also think there's power in social media. There's tons of uh, town halls going on with different organizations. And how do we continue to use that platform in this day and age to reach you know, other po the general population? And that's something that we as a community as a whole have to take responsibility for. Dr. McGluck, you all, of all the folks over at Morehouse School of Medicine, know the importance of the community engagement and being a part of that. You all have been over there for so many years now. Are y'all still getting a lot of folks with questions saying, you know, I, I just don't trust the process or what can you all do to assure me? So we, we have an 800 number that we make available for any questions regarding COVID, whether it's COVID testing, whether it's COVID vaccination. Um, we also have a community advisory board. So these are folks that are, are from our community um, that help us to uh, figure out what, what areas uh, that we need to spend more attention to try to get more engaged uh, with that particular uh, community or neighborhood. Um, we're part of Georgia SEAL, which is a, um, a statewide initiative that was uh, brought forward from NIH to work with other statewide and uh, private and also nonprofit organizations, including churches across the state. So we form a network so that, you know, if I have a question and it impacts a rural community, they would have a way to access that information. I mean, part of the issue with the inequities about COVID-19 rests on these social determinants, one of which is access to health care. Mm -hmm. But you could put in housing, you could put transportation, all of those issues impact whose information source and how easy can people get to it to figure out what's the best uh, uh, health care measures to take for themselves. Dr. Sai, I'll give you the last word in terms of, you know, reaching folks, vaccine hesitancy, and then also folks saying, look, sometimes... You know, that could be the blame, but it's also about access. In the end, as someone just wrote to me, are y'all going to say, I guess y'all, 
it wasn't that folks didn't get it, is that they didn't have access. And then therein lies the problem. So I think access is getting better. So first and foremost, no one should ever have to pay for a COVID vaccine. They should be free. We know Fulton County, Mercedes-Benz Stadium, you know, is doing a great job now. They're having walk-in appointments today between 2 and 10. Those types of initiatives, that is access. And how do we keep have, making sure we have those opportunities on a local level, in a systems level, city level? Um, and that's really going to be how we get past this, especially in this latter percentage that we're hoping to get vaccinated. And that's, that's going to be a challenge. But I think it's one that we're all acknowledging is there. And we'll have to partner together um, to keep moving forward with that. Dr. Duvall Desai, Director of Hospital Medicine at Emory St. Joseph's Hospital, as well as an internal medicine and pediatric specialist. I was also joined again by Dr. Lily Immergluck, who's, who's a primary care, primary care physician, get it out, and an infectious disease specialist and a population health service researcher at the Morehouse School of Medicine since 2005. And also Morehouse School of Medicine site principal investigator for the COVID-19 Prevention Network. Thank you both for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Our listeners sent in some good questions, I believe. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. And before we end today's edition of Closer Look, I want to bring you an update. As mentioned, today a group of Georgia faith leaders representing more than 1,000 churches have officially called for a boycott of Atlanta-based The Home Depot. The reason? Well, they say The Home Depot reportedly did not respond nor attend a meeting with the faith leaders and other corporations regarding Georgia's new voting law. Now, within the hour, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp held a press conference to respond. This is not about Georgia's election law. This is about a movement at the national level to nationalize elections and to have an unconstitutional takeover of state elections that were set up in the Constitution that way. And the people that are targeting them, including Stacey Abrams, cannot have it both ways because we know the political pressure has been out there and you're seeing the results of that right now with hardworking Georgians through no fault of their own being targeted because Major League Baseball decided to move the All-Star game because of pressure from these groups. And now you're seeing the calls for boycotting of Home Depot, a great Georgia-based company. And WABE's Emil Moffitt will have more later today during All Things Considered, hosted by Jim Barris. And of course, we'll have more reaction tomorrow on this program regarding calls to boycott Atlanta-based The Home Depot. Closer Look is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker. If you missed any of today's program, it's always online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. And wherever you find your favorite podcasts. So wherever you subscribe, that's where you will find Closer Look. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. 
I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.